Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Eric Green. He is an assistant professor of religious studies at Yale who specializes in the history of medieval Chinese Buddhism. Much of his recent research has focused on Buddhist meditation practices, including the history of the transmission of Indian meditation practices to China, the development of distinctly Chinese forms of Buddhist meditation, and Buddhist rituals of confession and atonement. Today we'll talk with Professor Green about his forthcoming book, Chan Before Chan, Meditation, Repentance, and Visionary Experience in Chinese Buddhism. Welcome, Professor Green. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with your book. Give us an overview of it. Um, my book is basically a historical and cultural study of Buddhist meditation as it came to be practiced in China in a relatively medieval or ancient period. Um, from around the year 400 to around the year 600. So uh, I was interested in understanding how Buddhist meditation came to be established in China uh, and really the history of the transmission of Buddhism from India where it uh, begins uh, to China and its uh, establishment as really the major sort of world religion of East Asia and mm -hmm. eventually goes on to become the main religion of Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and all those other countries. So this was a, a, a historical study of a foundational moment in the history of, of Buddhism in East Asia, and then also the topic of meditation, uh, which is something that, of course, uh, has a lot of cachet and interest in the modern world as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm always curious to know um, how people uh, are led to study what they do. So I am curious about that and what led you to write the book. Uh, well, uh, it's two sort of different questions mm -hmm. uh, there. Uh, you know, uh, when I was an undergraduate at uh, college, I was a math major, actually. I studied right. math, and I taught, I taught math in high school as well. But I also was studying Chinese language and also quite interested in Buddhism on a variety of levels. So after college, I kind of did some things, and I hung out with various Buddhist groups in California and sort of uh, learned more Chinese and eventually went back to graduate school. So that's the sort of long personal history of my interest in, in, in this topic. In terms of the actual how you wrote the book, you know, I did what most historians and scholars of religion do, mm -hmm. you know, I learned to, learned to read ancient Chinese and Sanskrit and read a bunch of things. And mm -hmm. I spent some time in China and Japan doing research uh, for the book and then, you know, closed my door and didn't let anyone call while I finished. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the research yeah. itself. How did you do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in part it was uh, attempting to discover sources that people hadn't looked at before. So there are, uh, you know, uh, the topic of Buddhist meditation is a quite... Um, one that many people have been interested in before, and in China and Japan, uh, this word uh, in the title of my book, Chan, this is the Chinese pronunciation of the word uh, Zen in Japanese, which uh, is, of course, more well-known in, in English. So there's a lot of, of things written on this topic. Um, but you know, one of the things I discovered in the course of my research was there was uh, a large number of, of documents and also sort of material cultural remains, paintings and things like that from this early period. Uh, that had kind of slipped through the cracks and that didn't form part of what eventually becomes a more mainstream discourse on this later in Chinese and Japanese mm -hmm. history. So I had to uncover those uh, materials and find them and read them and understand them, uh, translate them, learn enough about the history of Indian Buddhism to see how this sort of interaction was happening uh, in ancient times, mm -hmm. uh, and, then, and then write it. Okay. How did the interaction happen, India to China? Yeah, well, Buddhism uh, begins in India, as we sort of already said, uh, and 
maybe around, the, let me say, the turn of the Common Era. Uh, it comes to China in some form. We don't know very much about the early history. Uh, missionaries basically arrive across the Silk Roads uh, in Central Asia, probably accompanying traders, which we know was uh, a big uh, event that was taking place at this time across Central Asia. Uh, sometime around 200, 300, 400 Buddhist communities begin to establish in China texts, scriptures, uh, the doctrines of Indian Buddhism are translated, monasteries and nunneries, a form becomes a major part of the Chinese sort of social fabric of this time. Uh, and in that matrix, Buddhist practices develop ideas about uh, Buddhist practices uh, get written about and thought about in Chinese. So of course, you know, anyone who studies uh, periods of time this ancient know many things about uh, the history that we cannot we cannot know and reconstruct. Mm -hmm. uh, what survives to us are archaeological remains, but then also uh, documents and texts. So we learn about the um, how Buddhist meditation was thought about, what people thought it was, what people thought it would do, uh, and then maybe some fragments and snippets of how it actually takes place on the ground and the, the kinds of people who are carrying it out and things like that. Mm -hmm. So tell us about um, what it was like. What were people thinking of this and how were they practicing it? Yeah. Well, I just, uh, you know, parenthetically, one of the reasons that I was quite interested in this topic is because, as I said, uh, Buddhist meditation is something which is now uh, sort of well-known in say, modern Western culture. We hear about uh, meditation practices associated with Buddhism, but also in a kind of more generic right. or uh, spiritual way. Spiritual way, and then also in maybe we can say like a mental health way. The right. wellness industry, even here at Yale, we mm -hmm. have, you know, students take my class, they often come and tell me, oh yeah, you know, there's some group that the sports team sets up to help people meditate, to get calm before mm -hmm. their, their game and things like that. So we have a certain sense of meditation as this uh, quite neutral, practice not connected with any specific religious dogmas or beliefs and uh, leading to a psychological mental health in a mm -hmm. sense that we can understand. Now certainly I th it's you know in ancient China and even in China and Japan today uh, it is often quite different from that so a, a lot of the uh, material I looked at had to do with uh, traditional Buddhist meditation practices focusing on things like uh, the impurity of the body, techniques for uh, ridding oneself of sexual desire or attachment or um, interest in, in the world, things which actually, in a kind of modern perspective, might look you know, downright antisocial uh, mm -hmm. in a certain way. But this was really, you know, what, uh, uh, what many Buddhists, and even most Buddhists, were interested in using meditation for. And, you know, in terms of the, the people who are practicing it, this is another uh, area where uh, Buddhist meditation in its more traditional sense looks kind of different from this thing which has now become part of uh, our world. And that is that uh, meditation was, was not something that everyone could do. It was practiced by monks and nuns, and not even by all monks and nuns, by a very small percentage of Buddhists in medieval China. It was a, it was a truly sort of, uh, uh, not esoteric, but advanced or even hardcore practice that was not suitable for everyone. Uh, in many of the documents that I looked at, and this was something I got kind of interested in for a while, uh, we find not only that, of course, meditation can make you enlightened and turn you into a sort of a Buddha or a saint or things like that, but they could also hurt you harm your body, lead you to sort of insanity, basically, but also various kinds of bodily illness. Um, so there was a, I have a line in one of my uh, articles where I say it was uh, thought of as a, a high-risk, high-reward activity. Uh, and again, this is, this is something which I think is probably pretty different from how uh, meditation, at least, is discussed in, in most forms of sort of popular uh, culture in the modern world. Although there is actually, in, um, at, not so far from here, at Brown University, there's this uh, psychologist, Willoughby Britton, who is uh, doing a study precisely of the negative effects of meditation that have uh, 
been not often talked about, but there are even in sort of contemporary settings, there are many documented cases of people having adverse reactions. So some well, of the stuff that I've, I've done connects with those things, but is still a sort of minority tradition. Okay, so I am very curious what the downside of meditation could be. Well, you know, uh, if you're interested in the sort of, you know, contemporary reporting on uh, possible negative effects of, of meditation. Again, as I said, there are a few people who are looking at that in, in the modern world. Uh, in you know, the ancient context that I study, mm -hmm. uh, it's of course hard to know uh, precisely what was happening on the ground, but from a cultural historical point of view, the interesting thing, what I found interesting was the way that you know, it was not conceptualized or talked about in a sort of anodyne, this is a universally good sort of thing that anyone on the street could just sort of pick up and use to make their life better mm -hmm. or be happier or calmer in, in, in the way that maybe it's been sort of psychologized for us in, in the modern world. This was a, this was a powerful religious technology that you know, had a lot of uh, potential for doing really amazing things, but was also needed to be maybe controlled, right? Not something you could just assign to mm -hmm. everyone and have them do it because of course it could put you in contact with divine powers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, in many of the texts I look at, we have discussions of, you know, meditation will lead to uh, meeting uh, Buddhas and other gods who live in other worlds and you know, conveying powers to you and things like that. This was this is um, powerful stuff that you don't just want anyone to to have yeah. access to. So, what was the meditation process actually like? Did you get any um, insight as to how they were practicing back then, specifically? Yeah. Well, you know, certainly we have a lot of um, sources which. Uh, give us kind of techniques of meditation. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that I, you know, even more so than the techniques of meditation, uh, what I became very interested in was the question of, uh, you know, the results of meditation and then how that uh, sort of interacted with uh, the social world. So um, when people became known as sort of masters of meditation or, or adepts uh, skilled in meditation, what then were they able to do? So they would right. often, of course, become uh, sort of famous Buddhists who were patronized by, by rulers and emperors. Uh, but then also this question of, uh, you know, who, who got to decide when you had succeeded in meditation. Mm -hmm. Again, this is another one of these things that I think uh, we often don't talk about. We sort of, you know, maybe a mindfulness technique is given to someone. You say, well, you know, you think about your body and you sort of calm your mind and then what, you'll like feel better or something. You'll be less stressed out. Um, mm -hmm. But, and that, you know, if you don't think meditation leads to anything more than that, that's mm -hmm. maybe enough. But in a uh, traditional medieval Chinese context, you know, being a master of meditation would mean that you were now someone who could give authoritative advice to, say, an emperor or something like that. So mm -hmm. it was really important to know uh, who, who that was. Mm -hmm. So uh, many of the, the manuals that I look through, they describe this. They say, well, you know, you, if you do this certain practice, you will have this kind of vision, and then you can know that uh, you've succeeded. But if you have this other kind of vision, or maybe you know, these sort of negative effects that I was talking about, mm -hmm. this, this is a bad thing. So there was a lot of um, concern over regulating the success or failure of, of, of these practices. And, and discerning who uh, was now uh, authorized to, mm -hmm. to make those decisions. So who did determine those things? And, and tell us about some of the visions that were good ones and some were, that were bad ones. Yeah, well, you know, the, the question of uh, who clerical authorities is probably the simplest way to say, you know, who mm -hmm. did. But of course, which of those, which among them are the ones that get uh, selected to do that? This, this is one of these sort of on the ground soci sociological questions that it's pretty difficult to answer from, okay. a, from a historical point of view. But we have some indications, we have stories of, you know, given uh, individuals who in their kind of slightly mythologized biography are said to have reached some great meditative attainment and then were appointed to be the, the, the head of some monastery or nunnery. We have paintings of meditation masters who are depicted uh, sort of meditating and having certain visions. 
Um, and levitating too. Is that uh, you know, a part of it interesting, at all? Yeah, levitating. That's one of the uh, the powers that is described in many sources. Not so much in uh, okay. in 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 China that I ever encountered. Uh, being able to sort of tell the future. That's a that's a common one. Mm -hmm. But also, um, you know, other kinds of magic powers. You know, the uh, this is a, a connection which is which in some places in the modern world in the modern West, people do uh, talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. Although it's maybe somewhat segregated from the more secular uh, versions of meditation. When I was a kid, I remember, I can think back to some of my you know, uh, forms of media that I consumed. I remember you know, watching films like Star Wars or The, the Karate Kid. There's a certain sort of uh, mysticism associated with meditation, even mm -hmm. in its modern Western right. forms, and really promising of this kind of power that you, that you might get. And this is, this is very, uh, sometimes it's presented as a kind of corruption of the Buddha's true teaching, which is not about magical powers. But I, more accurately, historically, this, this goes way back in Buddhism. This has always been sort of promise that you would get, be, have the potential to gain this kind of mastery over both yourself but then the physical world as well. Right. And were there any critics of the practice during this time that you came across? I'm curious because it does seem when any, when any small population controls yeah. something there's always another force that has some kind of criticism of it. Well I think um, so in the context of China which is the sort of place that I've been looking most at, you do have criticisms of Buddhism as a whole. Mm -hmm. So even though, as I said, Buddhism becomes a kind of major religious force in East Asia, uh, there are uh, many critics in China who basically say this is a foreign religion, We sh Chinese people shouldn't have anything to do with this. Uh, in the case of maybe, say, within Buddhism, and which I sort of think what you were asking, uh, what's interesting actually is that we have you know, criticisms of whether a given person is really should be authorized, has reached this sort mm -hmm. of level of attainment or something like that, but not criticisms of the general principle. And this is, I think, actually quite traditional when you look at the way that many religions um, operate in traditional contexts, which is uh, there, there's definitely doubt and contestation about whether any given person has done this correctly, but not about the principles of the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So this, this, this kind of modern world we live in in which uh, you know, your religious belief is one option among many. You can either believe in these things or not, and you have to sort of defend them in the public sphere by arguing against someone who doesn't. That sort of wholesale uh, doubting is, is less common, uh, certainly in China in the mm -hmm. case of Buddhism. So that, that there were people who had these powers, no one really doubted that. Whether you, who claimed to, were or not, that's now something that can be debated. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And let's um, get back to the visions. Mm. Describe some of the visions that people would say they had. Oh, well, yeah, the vision uh, in the many of the, this was one of the reasons I became kind of interested in this particular s uh, collection of documents that I ended up mm -hmm. focusing on for in, in writing the book is because they, they are really quite incredibly elaborate, as I said before, uh, you know, visions of various divinities or Buddhas, but then also connected with uh, certain uh, specific forms of meditation. So I mentioned these uh, meditations on the impurity of the body, for example. This is a quite traditional Buddhist practice connected with the idea of uh, getting rid of sexual desire, but then also sort of becoming separated from your, your sense of self or something like that. So there is a, that's a, that was one area where you have an enormous range of, you know, visions of the inside of your body, of the organs kind of rotting, of yourself turning into a skeleton, of sort of fields of dead bodies in front of you, of, of everyone you're looking at turning mm -hmm. into a dead body. So this is, this is the kind of visions that would often be intentionally cultivated, really, within these things. Uh, uh, there are also, you know, many uh, examples where 
the line between a, a good vision and a bad vision it looks from the outside rather small. Mm -hmm. So there's one, one particular text I'm thinking of now where you know, they, they list the practices and then say, well, you know, if you have a vision of a, of a white dog walking into your meditation room, that's a good sign. But if you have a vision of a camel, that's a bad sign. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, it's, 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 it's not so easy for us to tell why mm -hmm. one is good or not. Well, and it's also interesting because there, to me, it starts to cross a line to mysticism or the occult, sort of. Yeah. I'm like fortune-telling in mm -hmm, a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I Good think luck, bad luck, that right. kind of thing. And, and this is, you know, uh, this is actually one of, from a sort of more kind of within the field uh, point of view, this is one of the things that I was trying to do in my book, uh, which is to approach the study of meditation from a perspective that would allow us to connect it to all of these other domains of, of, of Buddhism and religious activity. So there's often a, a perspective, and this is something that uh, in the modern world is often uh, articulated very strongly, that, oh, you know, meditation is this very sort of rarefied part of Buddhism. Right? And, and in practice, as I said, uh, it is a rarefied part of Buddhism. This is not something traditionally that most Buddhists would be able to do. Uh, but the idea that it was sort of intellectually rarefied, that yes, there was a whole world of kind of medieval religion in which people believed in, as you say, sort of fortune tellers and gods and things like that. There was a sort of cadre of you know, intellectual Buddhists who were doing something similar to, to us mm -hmm. you know, in the modern world. Uh, and I, I think that's not true. Uh, and I, I, and I, one of the things I wanted to do in the book that I've tried to do is to, is to show the ways that even when you look at how uh, meditation and its fruits are being discussed by the most intellectual strata of medieval Buddhists, they, they connect it to all these other domains. So they, they were interested in, in, in attaining success in meditation to be able to predict the future, to be able to communicate with the gods, mm -hmm. even if they thought their, their techniques were superior to those, say, that would be sort of practiced by fortune tellers on the streets of, you know, capital of medieval China, mm -hmm. uh, it was the same kind of activity, and they were still hoping for the same kinds of, say, visions or dreams uh, for confirming their success that you would find in many uh, different parts of both Buddhism but also other forms of Chinese mm -hmm. religion in, in, in the medieval world. Did you um, look at India um, and what was going on and how they were practicing Buddhism there during the same period that they were in China? Yeah. And are there similarities, dissimilarities? Um, talk about that a little bit. Yes, that's a, a very uh, large question, of course. Um, one, of the, one of the arguments I do make in the book is that the uh, collection of these medieval Chinese sources for thinking about Buddhist meditation, they're uh, important from the perspective of China, but they're also important from the perspective of kind of a broader trans-Asian history of Buddhism. So the, the, the material that survives for the study of Indian Buddhism um, we have sort of the texts and sermons attributed to the Buddha himself, mm -hmm. and then we have a lot of much later material. There is actually this large kind of maybe 400-year window in the middle where there aren't a lot of sources to study Indian Buddhism. So the, uh, the meditation texts that I examine in, in my book, uh, many of them were translated from Indian languages. Mm -hmm. uh, Sanskrit or really kind of medieval other forms of, of Indian languages at this time, uh, and some were composed uh, in China. So they, I, I think there, is, there are differences uh, in their particularities to the Chinese situation, but there is also a way in which uh, China, because of the tendency of texts to get preserved there better mm -hmm. than they do in India, where it's actually, there's material reasons for this too, because in India it's very hot and wet. Mm -hmm. uh, texts are, manuscripts from the medieval times are much rarer, whereas in China you have, you have many more. Uh, this actually gives us a, 
a window onto Indian Buddhism as well. And, okay. and man, many of the things that I, we were just discussing, I think this, this is true of Indian Buddhist meditation at, the, at this time as well. Uh, so one of the things I did want to sort of argue in the book is that this is not a kind of corruption of, of Buddhism, which is often how uh, these things get presented, that you have a sort of early pure tradition of sort mm -hmm. of ra rational meditation not influenced by all this fortune-telling stuff. Right. Uh, and then later, you know, as people stop understanding it or to appeal to the masses of people or something like that, you, these things get added. So I, I do want to argue, and I do argue in the book, that that's, that's not really a correct understanding. This is, uh, and that through this material in China from the 4th and 5th century, we can really see that across China and then Central Asia and then in, in India as well, even if the view into India is a little bit murkier because mm -hmm. of the uh, long distance and the, the, the relatively uh, fewer uh, direct sources. Mm -hmm. So uh, ultimately, what do you conclude in your book, and what would you like readers to take away from it? Yeah, well, I, I think the main thing that I, I want readers to take away from it is, I mean, on the one hand, there is a, a specific question about uh, the history of meditation in, in China and East Asia. And we have the, uh, the forms, uh, or this uh, tradition, really, a sort of sect of East Asian Buddhism, Zen, that's quite well known, that does uh, have an approach which maybe looks a little more familiar to us, emphasizing meditation as a very sort of rational, abstract uh, procedure. So on the one hand, you know, specifically to Buddhism in East Asia, to, to take away from it that there's a much richer tradition there of meditation that interacts with all these other aspects of uh, society and religion that we were just talking about. Uh, but then, you know, maybe for the, for the broader reader, uh, you know, to, to know something about the history of this, this thing, Buddhist meditation or mindfulness, however you want to uh, call it now, mm -hmm. that, that, that we encounter around us, in, or many people in, in modern West and America, will we'll find this at various points, you know. And to know that it, how it's gotten to us is a little bit more complicated, right? This isn't just something that, you know, some kind of gift of the Buddhists to the modern world that we can just take and do with what we want. That there has been a selective gathering, and there's and there's um, there's a history to that. And you know, there are uh, uh, that's maybe something that people, and it's something that many scholars have sort of looked at and said, mm -hmm. well, you know, this is this has taken place within the matrix of kind of colonialism in the 19th century, the Orientalism, and all sorts of uh, distortions. Although I think that word is maybe not the best one, but ha have occurred to create these sort mm -hmm. of modern mindfulness that is now just a sort of a therapy you can apply within your, uh, you know, general practice of, of wellness or whatever. And which is now not to say that people shouldn't be doing that, because of course, who who would I be to say that mm -hmm. you shouldn't, you know, use mindfulness to, you know, feel better about about yourself or whatever. Uh, but there is a way in which studying the past and seeing a very different version of something can, you know, challenge the uh, uh, fixed nature of some of these things that we encounter, mm -hmm. and then, you know, to make us see that, oh, maybe, you know, this isn't the only way of being in the world, mm -hmm. that there is a possibility of change, and there has been change in the past. That's, that's a sort of general defense of the humanities more than anything else, but hopefully uh, something in my book will that as well. Okay, fascinating. So what are next steps for you? Uh, well now, so I've, this Buddhist meditation topic I've been working on for a long time and now uh, I'm starting a new project associated with the studying the, the history of translation uh, in, Indi in Chinese Buddhism. So as I said uh, before, the uh, process of the transmission of Buddhism from India to China was accompanied, among other things, by the translation of a large number of Indian Buddhist scriptures. This really, from a world historical point of view, is probably uh, almost certainly one of the largest, if not the largest, sustained 
uh, translation projects in the, in the pre-modern world. The, the volume of material translated, the distance that had to be negotiated in terms of the difference between the Indian languages and Chinese, the mm -hmm. conceptual differences. Uh, and this went on for many hundreds of years. Uh, and it forms the basis of the Buddhist canon in, in East Asia. But the, but the process of this translation, the, the strategies that were adopted by translators, the difficulties they encountered. Um, so I'm uh, doing a project now associated with the translations that took place really in the first two or three hundred years of this process, uh, where uh, the language is often quite different from what we find in later literature in, in China. It's quite harder to understand. But you can really see the, the early uh, Chinese interpreters of Indian Buddhism struggling to make sense of what at the time was a very uh, very new and different uh, religion, but also a sort of philosophy and mode of thought and stuff like that. And this, this will be, uh, this is a, something I've long been interested in. Of course, it's connected to any aspect right. of studying Buddhism in East Asia, but now to focus specifically on this problem of translation and, and how that took place and the issues that it brought out. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I've been working on now. All right, well, we will look forward to hearing more from you then. All right, then. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, thank you for being here and sharing your work with us. For more information about Professor Green and his research, please visit our website at macmillanreport.yale.edu. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you so much.